2011, uh, as I was making my way across the country on my bike, as part of my Carbon Sabbath trip, I got a call from my dear friends, Christy and Russ. Christy and Russ were from North Carolina. Um, They're a couple in their late 20s, uh, folks that I had befriended during my time at Yale Divinity School. When they called, they had just been released from jail in Washington, D.C. They went to D.C. with people from all over the country to protest the Keystone XL pipeline. For the first time in the climate movement, major leaders, major leaders like NASA scientist James Hansen, like writer Bill McKibben, like Gus Speth, the dean of Yale's forestry school, these folks risked their stature and their comfort to stand up for a specific threat to the planet. All were arrested, along with my friends Russ and Christy. Because the D.C. police knew it was the first wave of several planned protests, the police held them in jail for three days instead of just overnight. So Russ and Christy had no correspondence for three days. When they were arrested, well, when they were released, they saw each other from across a courtyard and ran. And a, a photographer from the press caught this beautiful moment as they came together and embraced in tears. The next day, they called me. I didn't know much about the Keystone XL pipeline. And they filled me in. Keystone XL was to carry oil from the tar sands in Alberta, Canada, down to the Gulf of Mexico. There, this oil, which was among the most toxic and most demanded the most energy to extricate of all oil on the planet, this oil will be sold mostly to China. Along the way, this nasty sludge would be carted over one of the most important sources of fresh water in the United States, the Ogallala Aquifer. The Ogallala Aquifer provides water for over a third of all irrigated agriculture in the United States. Stop and think about that a second. A third of all agriculture in this country. It is massive. It extends under eight states and provides drinking water to all of them. As Russ and Christie told me about the pipeline and aquifer, I knew I had to get involved with this. So I modified my cycling route so that I could ride through the sand hills of Nebraska, the heart of the Ogallala aquifer, a natural beauty in its own right. Nebraskans like to brag about how you can see the sand hills from space. They are essentially grassy dunes with small ponds scattered about. As you might expect, that habitat is perfect for migrating waterfowl and a variety of different birds. I spent several days cycling through this, this country, which is both beautiful and very hard on a bicycle. It's mostly sand, and I'm, <laughs> I had to push my bike, you know, this heavy bike through, through all this sand. But it was absolutely amazing. 
beautiful, clear stars at night. Long, quiet days with just the breeze blowing through that grass. After cycling through that country and getting to know the people whose lives would be impacted by uh, the pipeline, I was present in the State Department hearing in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then months later, I met many of my Nebraska friends in D.C. for a day of protests around the White House. After years of protests in November of 2015, President Obama rejected the Keystone XL pipeline. On Tuesday, as we are gathering for the Interfaith Climate Vigil right here at St. Mike's, the news came in. President Trump revived the Keystone XL pipeline and the Dakota Access pipelines. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's hard to think of my friends in Nebraska. These aren't Prius drivers like me. These are ranchers and farmers, people with calloused hands, wrinkled skin, and bright, gentle eyes. It's hard to think of the devastation that pipeline will bring to their land. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's hard to find words to comfort my friends in the climate movement who have worked so hard for years, risked their own well-being just to prevent the devastation of the planet, yet they are coming up empty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Many of us read the headlines this week, it was difficult to find hope. Amidst news of environmental destruction and the construction of walls, the Dow Industrial Average closed at a historic high, padding the pockets of the nation's wealthiest and increasing the gap between the haves and haves-nots in our country. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> These are the words that begin Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. And for the next several weeks, we'll move through the Sermon on the Mount and study its intricacies and wrestle with its challenges. But today, today we focus on the Beatitudes. We've talked about the Beatitudes before, and we all know these. We've heard these throughout our lives. They are very familiar. But today, we have the chance to see how different they are from common sense, from the ways of the world. It's funny how the familiarity of passages like this kind of disarms them. It makes me think of, of songs like, uh, This Land is Your Land, Woody Guthrie's amazing, amazing song. This is a song we all sang probably in kindergarten. It's a song that you know, we think of as just like this sweet like campfire song. But it's so much more than a sweet little children's song, although it is that. This is a song that was written as Woody Guthrie was going around and visiting migrant workers 
people that had lost their land, their home, their families in the Dust Bowl and moved to places like California. People who lived in tents. People who had nothing. This land is your land. Like Guthrie's song, these statements, these beatitudes, invert our values. They show us what matters. They give us a description of happiness. We've talked about these, uh, these words before, the words that start off every phrase in the Beatitudes. Here it's translated blessed or blessed. In Latin, it's beati, which is where we get the term Beatitudes in Matthew's original Greek. It's makarioi, the plural of makarios, which meant blessed, but also really meant happy. Happy. Happy is the better reconstruction of the Aramaic. Happiness, that thing for which we all strive in our own separate ways. Like many of you, I've been uh, thumbing through uh, this great new book that came out uh, just a couple of months ago by the Dalai Lama and, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu called The Book of Joy. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, it's, I highly recommend it. It's fun. It really You get to delve into the reflection of these two great teachers, two experienced people, and hear what they have to say about happiness and joy. Um, there's one line that was mentioned as I was, as I was thinking about the Keystone Pipeline and all the other work that's going on right now that's being dismantled. Um, there's a line in there where the Dalai Lama was asked, how do you cope with the great suffering in Tibet? And he answered, I trust in the sincerity of my heart's intention. I trust in the sincerity of my heart's intention. This book has, has so much more going on. That there's actually uh, a third person that, that kind of uh, interviews both the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and directs the conversation. That person's name is Douglas Abrams. Um, and in one of the interludes, Abrams meets with uh, neuroscientist Richard Davidson, who's actually the same person, remember we were talking about about a month or two ago about the, 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 per, the neuroscientist who put the, the, the helmet on the, uh, on the monks and to observe their, observe their uh, mindfulness and uh, their behavior of what they would call their heart. Same, same neuroscientist. And um, Davidson talks to Abrams about four circuits of brain chemistry that influence our lasting well-being. Four circuits. They are the ability to, one, one circuit delves into maintaining happiness, feelings of happiness. Another delves into, uh, or is responsible for our ability to recover from negative events. A third deals with our ability to focus. And a fourth entire circuit of our brain is dedicated to generosity. Generosity, our thoughts outside of ourselves, our connection with others. This science confirms what the Beatitudes suggest. Happiness is not where many look for it. It's not in success, prestige, wealth, or power. It's not the machinations of politics or the pride of our own edifice. Happiness is 
relational. We know Jesus' teaching on this relational aspect. Love of God and love of neighbor. And that teaching is not just about us alone in our rooms, conjuring a warm feeling for the divine or the human being in the, uh, in the next building. The pursuit of those twofold loves requires deep commitment to justice. It requires a commitment to the delicate dance of power and love. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power, at its best, is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice, at its best, is power correcting everything that stands in the way of love. This relationship, this complex interconnectedness of love, justice, and power is a repeated theme in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Today's passage from Micah, we get the story of a verse. The story of a people looking elsewhere to find God. In our house, uh, we have this little needlepoint, <laughs> little needlepoint verse. Have you ever, have you ever seen those? So maybe some of you even have them. I, I don't know if ours came from uh, from uh, an old uh, relative. Do you know the story of it? It's from Mima. That's what I thought. Okay, uh, from from uh, Mary Beth's grandma. But we place ours right by the door of our house, so that every day, as I walk in and out of this house. There is this one line. It's the line that many of us know, many of us have heard before. There in Needlepoint, it says, God has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I see many of you repeating the line, just as we might sing Woody Guthrie's song. We know these words. We've heard them. They are familiar. But do we have them with us? The context today, the context of this passage gives us so much more. It tells us how people were chasing around, trying to put more oil on the altars, trying to do all these things to offer to God that God had not asked. As I go through my daily lives, there are plenty of things that I do that keep me busy. Things that seem like what I need to do. Things to which I've given value, whether consciously or not. But from time to time, as I leave the house, I look to that stitching and my values are reordered. Do justice. Love kindness. And walk humbly with your God. Walk with your God. The word we translate humbly has no direct translation. From similar languages, linguists have determined that the phrase means something like walk deliberately or walk with intention. Walk mindfully. Be aware that you walk with God. Be intentional as you walk with God. Go into this walk with your whole being. Or, 
as the Dalai Lama put it, trust in the sincerity of your heart's intent. Amidst times of confusion, in days like the days we have seen just this week, I try to return my heart's intent to walking with God. As I do that, the way becomes clear, even if it is just the next step. I find the path of what Michael calls loving kindness. I feel God teaching me to do justice. And I begin to see the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, a way of power amidst loss, a deliberate walk through failure to get to change. It is in that deliberate walk that we learn the way of blessing, the way of happiness, the way of Jesus. Amen.